Hello, and welcome once again to This Week in the Ancient Near East, the podcast that takes archaeology exactly as seriously as it deserves. I'm Alex Jaffe, director of the Bob and Ray Institute of Archaeology at the University of Southern North Dakota at Hoople. With me, yet again, are two academics from real, tangible institutions, Professor J.P. Dessel of the University of Tennessee and Professor Rachel Hallett of the State University of New York at Purchase. Today we're talking about the discovery of food remains at Caravanserai in the Negev Desert. Dating to the Nabataean and Roman periods, these sites served spice caravans going from Yemen to Gaza. They also seem to have served oysters and soft-shelled crabs, at least to judge from the food remains. What can we tell about trade from food remains connected with trading sites? Do these foods tell us about the preferences or even identities of the participants? Is this evidence for early globalization or just an early Howard Johnson's with an especially full menu? Okay, so I have a lightning round and it'll all fit together as as one piece. You'll see. Um, Name one memorable place where you've had a meal on a trip. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, I think we're, we're at a slight disadvantage compared to <laughs> Professor Dessel here. Oh, yes. The Ulaanbaatar Holiday Inn <laughs> has a great, has a great uh, they have a veranda. Great, they have a great breakfast spread. Yeah. <laughs> um, go ahead. No. All right. I'll lead off. Okay. It was a, th- uh, a breakfast at 3 a.m. in... Um, Heat Ashbury at a at a an all night diner called Raggedy Andy's. <laughs> Do you remember what you had? <laughs> Probably my usual, you know, eggs and toast, or possibly a tuna melt. But uh, but you can imagine what the what the environment was like. And right. It was you know it was fun. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I'll bring up, what was the question again? A meal on a trip? Yeah. Yeah. Memorable place. Not the meal itself necessarily, but. Oh, not the meal itself. Or the meal is good too. Oh man, there's a lot. All right. So I'll just, I'll just pick another. My only adventures in life have been when I'm in the field. So, um, so there's this, um, there's this sort of rest stoppy place in the Negev Desert, uh, not far from the Beit Kama Junction, which has a petting zoo and some really, really good um, Bedouin style bread that they make for you on the spot. Uh, and uh, with, with Libna and all sorts of stuff, that's the best. Who's dinging? That's me. I'm Was trying that to get off. I thought it was off. I don't know. I'm going to go with something very current. That involved all three of us, and that was a a delicious and convivial and lively dinner in Chicago at a great 
barbecue place. Yeah, that was good. It was a little so loud, but, but it was right. very lively. Yeah. I like I like the loud because I live in sort of a hermetically sealed <laughs> container. container. <laughs> so I like that's why I remember it because it was so loud and it was like, oh, life on Earth. <laughs> right. It's true. It was loud and it was crowded. And uh, you guys who like a lot of meat were raving about the meat. What did you get? You didn't? I, I didn't eat. <laughs> <laughs> that makes it extra memorable. <laughs> right. Not even a fried pickle. I, no, I might have tasted somebody's chicken or something. But oh, I had some fried, I had a plate of fried pickles in Atlanta last year. And they were tasty, but they, they stuck with you. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, I can still feel one right about <laughs> lodged in my esophagus. Very good. Interesting. How, how does this relate to? Oh, I can kind of see the, uh, the connection uh, going for. What's the connection? I'm not going to jump. The ahead. connection. The connection is simple. You gotta eat. You gotta eat. No, ma no matter where you go, you gotta eat. So, for example, if you're hauling spice. <laughs> some kind of old spice <laughs> from a melange of spice. <laughs> that's right <laughs> you're being chased by worms from from uh, the yemen I, uh, I, I think that whole that it's not the yemen it's just yemen I, yeah I <laughs> it's not the ukraine that. it's just ukraine not sure about gambia <laughs> <laughs> We, we, we're ready to be corrected on that, but yeah, um, yeah but if you're hauling, if, if you're hauling anything anywhere, uh, you got to eat yes. and you got to stop somewhere because, and here's the interesting statistic for me. How long does it take to walk from Gaza to Yemen? <laughs> well, according to Pliny the Elder, 62 days. That's right. Pliny <laughs> 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 Pliny the Younger is looking at his dad going, come on, dad. Yeah, I can do it. <laughs> Just pick it up. <laughs> 46 days, dad. Because <laughs> so, you know, you're stopping to eat every every night at a place and you're having the oysters or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was a bring your own oysters kind of place, though. I'm pretty sure they weren't. They weren't slinging oysters at these places. Right. Well, <laughs> right. I mean, that, that there were a couple of questions I have about that, but let's not well, jump into Well, that. maybe we should set it up yeah, a little more. Can somebody please introduce the topic? <laughs> All right. We don't want to do one of these 25 minutes until we describe. <laughs> so we um, are talking about the incense route and um, specifically the trade through the Negev Desert in southern Israel where um, the new thing is um, archaeologists have examined uh, some remains of trash piles at caravanserai, at various stopping points where people, where caravans stopped. And in the remains of these trash heaps, they found stuff. <laughs> Oyster shells, freshwater crab shells. Yeah. Right. Right. Fish. Fish. Fish bones, animal Fruit. bones, eggshells, ceramic sherds. <laughs> well, I don't think they're eating those. Yeah. Fish from the Nile, fish from the Red Sea, fish from the Mediterranean. That's sounds right. Like, sounds like a Dr. Seuss. It's this is like a, a, a Howard Johnson's menu of 
Well, is it though? Is it all you can eat? All you can eat that you can carry. (laughs) Well, that's that's the big question though: is what's being carried, and what's being sourced locally (laughs) from (laughs) from off the table. (laughs) Perhaps Rachel's greatest contribution to radio comedy. Yeah, Being too self-referential here. Um, so, so the the point though was this is apparently telling us something about the um, caravaneers themselves, the the people, the merchants, as opposed to the the stuff that they're carrying on one end to the other, as opposed to the delivery point, as opposed. Well, to what the, is it telling us that, that they ate? Well, it's telling us what they ate. But no, that they ate. That they ate. Um, I want to jump in here. I want to just cut to part of the chase, which is um, one of the things we read said that oysters and crabs were probably considered luxury items. Um, so were they the, um, the, the product that was then being broken into by the, by the merchants? I had an issue with understanding that. I think they were the equivalent of wasabi peas. Things that you, <laughs> things that you squirrel away in your, in your pack or in your messenger bag to eat on the road. Okay. So they're not necessarily luxury items. Well, items. I mean, you know, I don't think we will ever have a big enough database on crustaceans (laughs) (laughs) to know how luxurious it was to eat an oyster in the middle, in the middle of the Negev desert. Right. Conceptually it was, it was something like, what is that? I'm not getting near it. It's all yours. But if these were all salted and dried, then they were just like little, you know, savory snacks. And they had to be salted and dried, all the, all the fishy products. Right, presumably. <laughs> we have no evidence of aquaria. <laughs> <laughs> right. although, although there are uh, places and periods where live fish are being shipped uh, yep. ridiculously long distances. Yeah. And cool. so, you know, but I, I wonder whether, whether it's, it's an, an unreasonable assumption to, to think that maybe this was a classy caravan um, that's carrying its, its fancy edibles or whether it's a fa- fancy um, caravanserai with uh, an exceptional menu and they're sourcing these things separately. Okay. Maybe they're still dried and salted and, and whatnot, but that's two different uh, kind of reconstructions, which have two different, you know, say something, two different things about the possible, you know, politically, political economy of, so the, uh, of the era. Mm-hmm. So the structure of the structure of um, truck stops in the, exactly. In, yeah. the, uh, in whatever period this is, 300 BC to 200 CE. Right. right. Are people coming to this caravan, uh, caravanserai in the uh, Western Arava? Because it has the best oysters, um, and or because it's it's there and it's the only caravanserai. It's one of the only caravanserai. If you build it, they, they will come. come. Right, right, right. Well, well, one of these of the three places uh, was apparently a big deal caravanserai that uh, they they had um, an olive press and a bathhouse. Now the olive press. An olive press in the um, middle of the Arava. I think that that is interesting. 
Yeah. And the, right, but this is also the period where they're growing grapes in not in the Arava itself, but in the in the in the northwestern right. um, Negev, but and they're it, making wine there. Right, but it, I thought that was a little bit later. I thought that was in the Byzantine period when they were building these huge dams and able to grow and create. No? I thought it started earlier. Okay, that's fine. I, well, I, I have no expertise in this at all. But I mean, yes, we're probably right. wrong I mean, as usual, but no. So. I mean, it's clear that at certain periods they understood, you know, water technology and they were able to grow, um, you know, grapes and things like that. Right. In parts of the central Negev, I think it was on the Nahal Levan where you have these huge Byzantine dams right. and things right. like that. And so it certainly was a possibility. And if it was a possibility in the Byzantine period, undoubtedly, you know, it could yeah. have been a possibility earlier. Right, right. Um, and and I think it's interesting to distinguish between this big caravanserai and, and the smaller ones, because, you know, you're driving along Route 80 or something, and you're not going to stop in any old rest stop if you want one with good facilities. So there's, you know, you, you want to pick and choose. Right. This is uh, one of these is, is the Joyce Carol Oates um, stop <laughs> on the Jersey Turnpike. And the other is Thomas Edison. What are some of the others? Uh, Molly Pitcher. Molly Pitcher. Molly Pitcher. Uh, Vince Lombardi, I think. Vince Lombardi. Vince Lombardi is at the very, uh, very top, the very yeah. end. And, yeah. um, and uh, doesn't Johnny Depp have one? No, it's just, <laughs> just a joke. Just trying to be current. Uh, <laughs> but uh, what I like about this is that um, they were they looked at the garbage. Right. They looked at the, uh, the, the midden heaps. Right. Yeah. And that's what I wanted to mention also. Uh, that, you know, that's, this is an incredibly wonderful project. And the, and the archaeologists who devised it and then went out and did it deserve a lot of credit for yeah. looking at midden heaps at Caravanserai. What a brilliant idea. Yeah. And, and the fact that, um, I mean, they, they looked at, three caravanserai. We don't really, I mean, the kinds of questions that we were just talking about, we don't know how many caravanserai there are and if they're successful and unsuccessful, if it's really an open market and there's a lot of competition and a couple of caravanserai sort of, you know, move to the top. But regardless, this is a kind of analysis that, you know, needs it's real archaeology. Right. And needs to be done along the whole route from Yemen to Gaza. I mean, this is just wonderful stuff and then applied reapplied to all sorts of big long you know terrestrial routes across in all periods yeah yeah in all periods of course yeah because so, I, I for one am sick of hearing about trade <laughs> long distance trade um because yes as we've commented before uh, on this very podcast yes rocks are being moved from Badakhshan. right Right. Way, way, thousands, millions of kilometers to the west. Right. Okay, but there's a process, right. and they're, well, they're real living people with needs and desires, and who had to eat. <laughs> what, what, did, what did they eat, man? That's what I want to know. So, so this is this is getting you know into the life of the common man. Um, person. 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 Common man. <laughs> we dis we disavow those previous yeah, comments <laughs> on the part of our colleague. Fine. She's obviously been brainwashed by the patriarchy. <laughs> yes, it is. And yeah. and uh, so this is a really wonderful study that brought about a lot of really good information. Yeah. And uh, and and there's a lot to be said, um, you know, about a couple of things. One is 
um, demonstrating things that we've always always assumed. And Alex and I are, have had conversations going back probably close to 40 years on this, on this issue of not just making assumptions, but excavating archeological data, which just demonstrates the accuracy of sort of these very basic quotidian kinds of assumptions. Yeah. So we have that kind of thing going on. Um, we have the other question that was raised in some of these um, newspaper articles about something, again, that the three of us talk about a lot, pace, intensity, and scale. So um, if, if it's one oyster, then who the hell knows why? <laughs> hey, you know, but if it's you know, 400 oysters, that's a different thing. And if it's 4,000 oysters, that's yet a different thing. Right. So the only way you get a handle on pace, intensity, and scale, which I like to think are you know, the three most important vectors or axes in terms of understanding intersocietal relations in uh, non-literate or pre-modern societies, um, you have to start acquiring the data and that's what we have here. So, you know, how many more oysters we get that will speak directly to, you know, what the, what it means to have oysters floating around the neck. So, <laughs> so one of the things that um, is brought out uh, by these um, articles mm -hmm. is, you know, the idea of globalization. Right. And that's the thing. And we've touched on this a million times, so this will be the millionth and first time, is that there's ample evidence that goes back not, you know, 2,000 2, years, but that goes back, you know, 8, 10,000 years, 12,000 years, about lots and lots of networks that are being established to move all sorts of things, big and small, around increasingly larger and larger regions. So, of course, we always talk about obsidian. And the movement of obsidian, we uh, and we know about that from the from the Neolithic. We talk about lapis and the circulation of lapis, which is what at certainly fourth millennium. I wouldn't be surprised if there's a few pieces in the late fifth millennium, but certainly fourth millennium. Mm -hmm. So we know that these networks uh, as, are long established. Right. Yeah, and you can go back to to fifty thousand and look at networks of drilled ostrich shell beads. That was a recent, recent article that crossed, crossed my desk recently. <laughs> <laughs> and, and uh, yeah, but it's not, uh, uh, but it's not only these kind of fabulous uh, preciosities that are being, um, oh. <laughs> uh, it's, it's basic things like this is a sheep. <laughs> this is a pig. Well, right. I mean, right. Obviously, uh, this yeah. is this is wheat. We, we've we've beaten it into submission, right. so that it regularly produces juicy little little crops and yeah. and so on. Right. And and all of these things are overlapping and interpenetrating, and it's just becoming more and more dense networks of of relationships above right. a, above all. It's people knowing people. Because it's really that what it's all about. It's a people business. <laughs> and the past, and, it was a people business. Right. And, and so all of these networks are, you know, they're just, they're, they're continually being grafted onto earlier successful, durable systems. So when I think about 300 BCE, for the beginning point of this particular network from Yemen to Gaza, I think, well, Really, we're talking about stuff that was going on in, in the sixth or you know late seventh, sixth century with incense being moved from 
the Arabian Peninsula to Gaza under, you know, sort of Neo-Assyrian, Neo-Babylonian oversight, and then probably Persian. So that these, right. these networks existed, pre uh, already existed, and the Nabataeans, you know, with their logistical expertise and their production of pottery and their production of glassware, were just grafting their own um, economic systems onto, onto previous ones. Yeah. And, and ultimately, you know, you get bigger and bigger regions, right? Um, you know, from the Arabian Peninsula over to South Asia, from South Asia over to, you know, Indonesia. Right. And, and to, in addition to thinking about these networks, I think we should think about markets as well. Markets on both ends and everywhere in between on the route, uh, because there has to be a market for something in order to make it worth, worth the trip. Well, we've talked about that before. Do you need a market, or a demand, or you just need some kind of new stuff showing up and people going, whoa, this is cool. This is, we call this frankincense. Here, burn some of this. <laughs> right. Well, whether it's an existing market or a market that's created by, you know, yeah. savvy, savvy traders, it, right. ultimately you, you need one or the other. Yeah. Yeah, and, and we we can't really reconstruct what the the origins of demand, can we? No, no, we can't. Right. Well, no, we can't because we don't even know what's going west, which was an interesting thing. Yes, we know what the traders are eating, and yeah. this midden, the excavation of middens is really quite genius, but um, but everyone is still at a loss for what products are moving west to east. So I thought we should have a little we should take a whack at it. What might be moving west to east? I didn't know that that was the problem. I thought it was just spices. I thought that was the assumption. Was well, what kind of spices are no, they exporting no, from Gaza they, to Arabia? No, so the, the, spices are moving east, the spices are moving east to west. The question is, what's moving west to east? The question is, what's moving west to east? This is, I think this is being touted as, um, you know, we're now seeing some of the stuff like the Mediterranean fish that are. No, no, no. That's what, no, they're saying that's what they're eating. Yeah, that, but, but it's stuff that, yes, that's what they're eating, but it's originating in the West. I thought the assumption was that we did know what was coming from the, from the East to West and uh, that it's, it's the spices and that it includes stuff that we've recently, we've recently talked about like vanilla and I'm looking for my notes. Cinnamon. Cinnamon. No, but can we stop the recording? Pause. Yeah, you gotta pause. So while it seems clear that we know now that the caravans were going from west to east as well, and that they were bringing with them shellfish and fish from the Mediterranean and the Red Sea to eat at these hostels, at these caravanserai, we still don't really know what the specific cargo was that was being transported from west, the Mediterranean, to east, the Arabian Peninsula. Maybe it was just, you know, some, you know, maybe it was just money of coinage or something like that. But um, if there were any other specific products, we just don't know. There's no reason to think it, it couldn't have been other specific pro uh, products. Maybe, you know, herbs and spices and, you know, easily transportable things from the Aegean or from, you know, the various exotic kinds of, uh, you know, desert oases uh, to the east and west of the Nile River, those kinds of places. Right, that, that's interesting. So that's sort of the invisible export 
mm-hmm. um, excuse. Right. right, which the incense, frankincense, and myrrh are also invisible, but we, we know about them from texts. Right. right, right. We can also speculate about like gold from Egypt's eastern desert. Right. Um, yeah. And we can also now speculate about, uh, about um, cannabis. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, we need to add cannabis to the whole trade equation. Um, As we've talked about in previous But we only have evidence for that in the seventh century. Right. Uh, what, about the, uh, what about the camels themselves? Hmm. Oh, that's Maybe the camels themselves. <clears throat> from, from camel poor regions to camel rich regions, or mm-hmm. move these camels from you know it's basically interstate trucking right or or the trucks themselves are a commodity right and if they're keeping any kind of track of of uh of um you know breeding patterns like they like the mitanni did with horses for instance then maybe certain regions are known for you know a certain degree of you know robust durability and those you know egyptian camels are particularly sought right for this pick up some of those off-road camels (laughs) yeah (laughs) as opposed to those you know effete electric camels that uh right so maybe it is the camels themselves also it can be all sorts of you know woven kinds of things camel bags and you know good point textiles yeah and of course we know i mean one of the big you know one of the treasure troves for this kind of trade is is uh is the um, old Assyrian trading colonies. It's just thinking um, where, that, right. right. Where textiles are, you know, a huge part of the trading right. concerns. Right, it's textiles going back and forth for metals of right. various right. kinds. And, and to date, I don't think anyone has ever isolated those specific goods archeologically. We know that they were there because there are a million letters that are talking about textiles and metals and the, the various <clears throat> deals and the various ratios or, or right. the exchange they rates. Had, right. And they had credit and there was inflation and there was uh, lots and, of taxes and there was lots of um, smuggling. Right. Smuggling and dirty deals and roadblocks and stealing. And, but yeah. I don't think that anybody has ever excavated either a caravanserai to see what they were eating <clears throat> or the sites themselves, the the endpoint sites, to find what would essentially be microarchaeological evidence of of I mean, the, the materials. The car room right. itself has been excavated, but not right, but no textiles, right, right, or fiber r- remains. But maybe they will. Maybe they will. So somebody should get on that. Yeah. <laughs> so here's here's another question. So Pliny the Elder talks about what was it, sixty four days. Um, I want to know how long they stayed at any one of these rest stops. Was it hours? Was it overnight? Was it more than one night? And why? Go ahead, speculate. I don't know. I think it's like trucking. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, trucking, you have a log. Yeah, you have to put in exactly how many hours. Um, and every hour that you're asleep or <laughs> eating an oyster is an hour that you're not making money. Right. And uh, so you got you to gotta put the pedal to the metal, Bandit. Right. <laughs> right. 10-4, good buddy. Uh, right. And of course, with these kinds of caravans, you know, it's, it's probably difficult enough to, um, to get them going. 
and there's probably lots and lots of uh, you know issues en route. So I would say that they were probably trying to be most as as most efficient as they could. Yeah, so that makes sense. Pro- probably staying overnight, but you know, right. hit the road early in the morning. You got to water your camels. You got to eat food yourself and pack provisions. Um, right. You have to water your camels at least every three days. I think is the is the number. <laughs> but and that means you also have to take enough water for yourself to get you three days journey down right. the road. Exactly. Yeah. And how large <clears throat> were these camel caravans? Do we think? How many camels? You know, there's a lot of historical information that, yeah. that we don't that we don't have know. access to. I'm Not sure. at our fingertips. Right. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Um, hundreds, I mean, sometimes hundreds, or even thousands of camels, as I recall. Okay. Right. Even though in the old Assyrian case, they weren't using camels, they were using donkeys, but sometimes yeah. it was just one or two donkeys. Right. Um, you That's know, also and that, a, shorter, a shorter route, a more discreet route. As well, well, yeah, it was, a, it was difficult through, through mountain passes and things like that. Right, 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 right. But we're not, but you know, here we're talking about Yemen or Oman all the way to the Mediterranean and then. Right. So here they're using, they're using, you know, the big trucks, as opposed to the technology they had available in the second millennium and earlier, which was the donkey, the pickup truck. Right. The, of, the small SUV. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Good analogy. But I want to go back to this whole globalization thing. Yeah. So do I, because okay, that's a whole, that's a whole thing. So as it happens, I read a piece of a book about the archeology span of the Mediterranean the other night because I lead such an exciting life lying in bed. Um, wonderful book by Tamar Hodos. And she has attributes for globalization. And her argument is that the iron age in the Mediterranean is a globalized era. So here they are um, time space compression, deterritorialization, standardization, unevenness, cultural homogenization, cultural heterogeneity, re-embedding of local culture and vulnerability but <laughs> who isn't vulnerable <laughs> i mean just because they didn't have therapists <laughs> in the first millennium doesn't mean they were any less vulnerable <laughs> well that's true so our hearts go out to them really but time space compression means that everything was moving faster and more intense so that's pace intensity and scale right that's all this is all pace intensity and scale and deterritorialization, that's like everybody kind of getting on the same page culturally. Mm-hmm. Standardization, they have these, these idioms, common idioms that are starting to spread outward. Oh, I thought you were going to say the axle size of, a, uh, <laughs> of, an, of, of an old Assyrian cart. And, and so on. So there are these very particular kinds of characterizations, which are all derived from you know, analyses of 20th and 21st century uh, global economies. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there's a little bit of a a red herring or a canard here. And that is that, and again, this is sort of an evolutionary argument, which I normally don't like to make, but globalization has been going on for a long time in one way or another. And the best examples of globalization are things like the potato and the tomato. Mm-hmm. And um, you could also look at coffee. And mm-hmm. those are big, 
those are big quantum jumps because they have to literally, you know, hop the pond. They have yeah. to, they have to hop over the Atlantic um, to get that done. But, um, but there are these, you know, world system or regional world systems um, that we're now piecing together. Um, but again, go back to 50,000 years. Exactly. Exactly. So there's always been this impulse to, you know, have intersocietal relations based on trade and economics. And uh, I don't think that it should surprise anyone that there are these kinds of, you know, regional networks uh, and the idea of globalization shouldn't, isn't really all that radical, I don't think, anymore. Okay, okay. Um, so the is sort of the, the counterpoint is, um, you know, in a way, especially we're talking about caravanserai, all trade is down the line trade. I mean, you stop, you make, you make stops, you pick up other commodities, you drop off certain commodities. Um, and also in, so, so globalization, yes, um, but does one, is one endpoint fully aware of the other endpoint? Um, you know, are they aware um, in Gaza of what originated perhaps in India that, that originated there? Well, so that's, an that's a good and interesting question. And I just want to point out that in all of these articles, this idea about India and Indonesia being, you know, really deeply woven into all of this has not really been fully demonstrated. Mm, that's a good point. Um, you know, it's been alluded to, and there's certainly implications. And, you know, now we can talk about vanilla, even though our evidence for vanilla is, you know, it's <laughs> limited. It's limited, and it's um, in terms of, Temporal parameters, it's not consistent. It's yeah. a little bit here and a little bit there, things like that. Um, but in the case of Yemen to Gaza, I don't know if it was down the line. I think it was pretty explicitly organized to get things like frankincense and myrrh and mm -hmm. whatever other kinds of incense and spices from the east to the Mediterranean. And certainly the Nabataeans wanted their pottery and glassware from their heartland um, in, you know, sort of Southern Jordan mm -hmm. in the Negev to, to the, um, to the Mediterranean. And I think that, I think that they did all, they were aware of were. where these products were coming from and who they were dealing with. Okay. Okay. So I have a related question, sort of related. Um, do we, and I don't think we know, I don't think we can know, um, you know, the merchants, uh, at what point was it like a relay race, right? That one person hands it over to the next person who continues on. How far do the camels go before they just stop and rest and, and a new set of camels takes over and the same with the, the people. Um, well, so you're imagining a Pony Express kind of situation? Yeah. yeah. I, I, I think, think it's the same people going end to end. Yeah, I it's, think it's uh, right. I think it's these big medieval style caravans that we, that we have a lot of information and okay. know a lot about. I mean, that's what I was, okay, okay. Was, it's, it's, you know, we, don't have, we have no real understanding of, let's say, Neolithic obsidian trade, where obsidian from Eastern or Central Anatolia <clears throat> is going thousands of kilometers South, East, West, wherever. We don't have any idea of how long it takes. We don't have, how, have any idea of the social dimensions there's no caravanserai or middens there's some stuff here there's less stuff there 
Right. Um, but as opposed to, let's say, old Assyrian, um, old Assyrian trade, we have contracts. <laughs> you have to get it to, to, right. you know, you have to get your your textiles from Assyria to Anatolia, and you have to get it there on time. And, right, and I'm and vice versa. Right, and I, I would be surpri- I'm a little surprised that we don't have more historical information on things like that, and also. Um, a little bit more on the, the economics of it, you know, putting together big pools of credit in order to finance these caravans and see them to the end. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine that at some very primitive level that these, that the risk of these, of the success of these caravans wasn't being split up into some kind of very simple stock kind mm-hmm. of option where, you know, people would buy small pieces of the caravan in order to defray the risk to, you know, a couple of major players, but, but that's, you know, or, or, know right. or, or you contribute, you know, your, your kid with his five camels as part of the enterprise well, right. in, in exchange for a cut, a proportional cut. Um, but, and that sort of, that sort of furthers the whole, let's call it modernist or, or globalized, conception mm-hmm. that uh, they, they have these very you know sophisticated economic and social arrangements going going way far back right i mean credit is not a new idea uh, and no and, not at all everybody should just was, get that out of their heads right once it was established i have to believe that the idea of credit because it's so useful and attractive uh you know was diffused rapidly and wildly and by the time of these you know Nabataean caravans was well established. Um, the idea of risk assessment is also something I think we should talk about because it, not not just in terms of credit, but but you know caravans we have since Egyptian text caravans are getting attacked, right? right? Not every caravan makes it. Not every caravan makes it all the way. So how does that figure? Right, in? and not every camel is going to make it all the way. Not every employee is going to make it. Right. Um, so, yeah, well, yeah. we don't have we we don't have any idea. I don't think about how these things are internally organized. Right. No, but we know that they're quite aware of it. Again, from yeah. the old Syrian period, and certainly all of the Eastern Mediterranean trade in the late Bronze Age, we have enough shipwrecks to know yeah. that you know they had to that they knew you know they knew about the possibility of shipwrecks and they knew about the possibility of losing a lot of money and and so right. you know there was they clearly had to have had strategies for risk abatement. Yeah. And certainly by 300 BCE, they had those kinds of things deeply. Yeah. You know. What do you mean the camel died? <laughs> That's never happened before. <laughs> These right. things are just supposed to run and run and run. <laughs> oh. and, and, and who's insuring these things? Are these things being insured? Um, I'm glad I wasn't the one who had to mention the insurance issue again, <laughs> the way I usually do. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a whole invisible series of business relationships. Yeah. Right. Um, and it might speak to the reason of the success of the Nabataean society, because mm-hmm. they were the ones who clearly put these kinds of very complicated um, financial um, arrangements in order. And they had the logistical expertise. They had uh, they understood the markets and the logistics well enough to produce difficult kinds of things to transport, like pottery or fine wares and glassware. Um, 
and so all of that kind of invisible expertise is so essential and yeah. so important to these kinds of things. Whether on land or at sea. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, at, at sea, we only see them when they, when things um, don't work out. That's right. True. But, but now we can see at the level of what they had for lunch or dinner. Right. Yeah. And we still don't know what they traded. We don't know. Or what, was going, <laughs> what was being traded west to east. Right. I still prefer to say north to south, but that's that's there. That's just um, me. Yeah. That but is it, just you. I really do like the, <laughs> the basic thing here that they're that you know we do know what they were eating. We do know what these merchants were eating at least some of the time, at least while they were in the negative part of the the trip. Um, and that's do you, do you think that some people, some archaeologists, would say that that doesn't matter? That what matters really is what they were trading. And that, yes, of course, they had to eat. Yes, of course, they were eating whatever they were bringing or acquiring. But really, the, 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 the big macroeconomic issue is what, what was going west to east. I think, well, I think that one of the real big advantages of or one of the big impulses of any post, but in our case, post-processual archaeology, mm-hmm. is that everyone tells whatever story they feel like telling. Well, that's very true. Um, and I was going to say that like 50 years ago, that would have been the main concern, the, the macro question. But one of the beauties of being an archaeologist in the 21st century is you can look at these micro things. And- <laughs> it's, it's so beautiful. Get <laughs> <laughs> what they ate. <laughs> well, that's true. But everybody's being at, at this level. Uh, let's be honest. Everybody's sort of being turned into a prehistoric. That's true. <laughs> yeah. I'm not well, sure everybody's going to be comfortable with that. Well, but it's time to say some uncomfortable truths on this podcast. <laughs> well, there, there was a note that I made um, yeah. about the, and it's sort of ta- it's a little tangential to what you just said about all archaeologists being prehistorians, and that is sort of a lot of mixed metaphors. So one of the terms that came up was, you know, these mins provide a social archive, which mm. is a very explicitly kind of historical terminology mm, yeah. and how archaeology and how um, historians early modern modern historians talk about material culture studies That's as true. opposed to archaeology so it's really just the proliferation of jargon and taxonomy and terminology trying to be more precise for <laughs> what end i'm not exactly sure. like and yet why, getting further away right like why there needs to be a whole subdiscipline of history called material culture. They're trying to erase us, man. Right. Instead of just talking about archaeology, but yeah. you know, fine. They want to talk about material culture studies instead of archaeology. That's, I mean, who right. cares, really? Right. Well, that's, yeah, I think. But I, I, I like the term social archive. Do you? Yeah. Okay. I, I wasn't well, sure what to make of that term in this context, but I mean, I got it, but. <laughs> I, I prefer the term dead people's garbage. Yeah, because I think that I think that's a little more a little more piquant. Yes, I like to direct. get jargon but, out of there, and I felt that that social archive was very jargony. I don't know, Alex. Come on, thirty years ago, if you had come up with social archive, I know. you'd been dancing all over the place. <laughs> you would say, "Look at me, look at me." Yeah, I know. I, I was an arrogant and thin young man at that no, point. No, we were well, out. The thinness aside, we were, you know that's the nature of you know. Atness. Yeah, I know. Right. <laughs> but uh, I, no, I think it's a good term. I like the term. Okay. Okay. 
well. Okay, final thoughts? Midnight at the Oasis. <laughs> put your camel- Send that camel to bed. <laughs> put your camels to bed. Well, I'm and- actually, okay, so my final thought is, is a question. It's just a wondering that um, they're, you know, they're probably meeting other merchants as well. Maybe people going the other way and they're trading news and, oh, they're, they're trading information as well, which is something we should have talked about. But that'll be my final thought. Okay. Alan? That's even more invisible than, than the exports themselves. That's true. It's, it's, it's the social network. <laughs> it's the social network. That's right. Yeah, if I had invented that term. Yeah. <laughs> um. <laughs> Do you have a final thought? No, I'm just going to lament having not invented the term social network. That's right. Good. Okay. Okay. Well... After that, I think I'd better put the camels to bed. So we'd like to thank Erez Dessel, now a resident of the great city of Chicago, for our theme music. We'd also like to thank our sponsor, the Dead Sea Oyster Hatchery, bringing locally sourced and lightly salted oysters to a table near you. To get in touch, leave us a comment, or send us an email at thisweekintheancientneareast, all one word, at gmail.com, or send us a postcard at P.O. Box 1177, Boston, Mass., 02134.